Hello, John Elder here, Science Editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID Conversation. Today, the doctor is in. Dr Chris Moy is an Adelaide GP and the Chair of the Federal AMA Ethics and Medico-Legal Committee. Good morning, Chris. How are your vital signs and how are things in allegedly viral-free Adelaide? Yeah, it has been interesting because I think South Australia has done incredibly well, I mean, and there's a whole number of reasons for that. What I would say is that it has been an interesting thing having had more than two weeks with no cases. And the mindset has been a couple of things. Individuals sort of feeling like, you know, we can keep this perfect record, and I think that's unrealistic. And also that, um, that you know, we, we, we can relax and, and complacency could come in and that we would just be able to go into a world with no further COVID cases. And I think... Having the case, in fact, actually, there, there is actually a, a slight good reminder there that, that that's this idea about eradication in a world that's connected is, is probably unrealistic. We are going to get um, the odd case. Our job is to have ticked off on all the boxes, and that is, number one, got our hospital system ready just in case the curve goes up. Number two, make sure our contact tracing and sort of our monitoring is at an extremely high level, which nobody can say we haven't. Number three, get our sort of um, social distancing sort of rules and regulations right, aligned with the ability of, of the community to really stick to them. And then we really need that. And I think the other, the fourth pillar is this really critical pillar, which I think is being missed amongst all of this, is that general practice is actually going to be the front line for the, for the next keeping it under control because our job in the next bit will be to make sure, to remind all our patients that if they've got any symptoms at all, and, you know, the new normal will be if you've got a scratchy throat, runny nose, anything like that, that you don't go out, you call up your doctor and you get them to arrange a test for you or you go to one of these respiratory clinics and get a test before you go out or go to work because that's how, how we, you know, that's how it's going to spread in the future. And so this new normal of, you know, in the past, about 5 or 10% of us always having a sniffing throat or a runny nose and just going to work has to change. Look, there are two things there. What I was trying to say to you is this, that I think social distancing, you know, it's not being adhered to as, as much as it needs to be, um, whether it's in Adelaide or Melbourne or, or wherever. It just isn't. In terms of getting people to go and see the doctor, well, of course, GPs are worried reportedly about the financial viability of their practices uh, during the pandemic. An OzDoc survey uh, found that uh, billings were down by at least 25% since the start of the outbreak, uh, some much more than that. Reports of clinics relying on JobKeeper to stay afloat. More than a 1,000 general practice nurses have been laid off since the beginning of March, and one in three have had working hours reduced. The fear there is this, that... Uh, the nurses that have been let go won't be won't be brought back. Claims from some practices they've been racking up like ten thousand dollar bills for personal protective equipment. So there's a whole lot going on there that's that's hitting the doctors hard, and that we need to talk we need to talk about. But of course, turning that round, the big concern is the number of people that apparently not accessing care for issues other than COVID. And this would presumably include people with chronic conditions. Uh, some getting you checked for cancer, perhaps even uh, ca- cancer treatments. The other aspect might be that uh, some of the uh, drop-in numbers, of course, might be people who would take themselves to the doctor on a, on a low threshold. You know, some people who just might, at the, at the earliest sign of anything, would, would ordinarily go, and now they're not. What's your take? 
Yeah, to the last one, I'd say that if they've got any respiratory symptoms, fever, aching, they do need to have a low threshold to call up the doctor first, don't just turn up and, and get testing. But you're absolutely right. I, I think now, um, obviously, a few couple of months, several weeks ago, when really we were facing this rapidly increasing curve and COVID. And, we, and frankly, I was scared to death. Everybody was scared to death. You know, back then, the balance of risk was COVID. And that's why we needed to do all the things that needed to happen. Um, but now that the COVID numbers are so down, the balance's risk has changed completely around now. So the, the the risk of delay in treatment for various things, like if you've been having intermittent chest pain or angina, or if you've not been monitoring your diabetes, or if you've uh, not been monitoring your asthma and just getting stuck at home or not getting medications, uh, is a problem, or any major symptoms. I mean, I personally, unfortunately, have had to pick up the pieces on a couple of people who um, been able to access, unable to access care, and they've contacted us in desperation. And you know, so when you say they weren't able to access care, what do you what do you mean by that? See, um, during that really, particularly the early phase um, when um, it was uh, really uh, concerning, the social distancing was going into full mode. A lot of practices reverted almost completely to telehealth or completely to telehealth, which is now, uh, my understanding, under the, under the rules, not, not permitted. But they, they basically stopped that. And Or, unfortunately, there was the other aspect, as, as you've indicated. There were clinics that just closed up. They just couldn't continue. Um, and so there were a number of patients who were left hanging um, and not um, having access to care so they were really searching out for other other care and you know look just to give an example you know one of the one of the cases that i had unfortunately had respiratory symptoms as well that was actually part of the problem and so they were having trouble accessing care but they needed testing before for covid before we could start all the testing because they weren't going to be able to get x-rays and cat scans or go get go and have a blood test because we weren't going to send them into those sort of situations or we weren't going to be able to examine them until they, they had those things done so um yeah it was a lot more complex in that early stage look i'd like i'd like to come back to that let me go back though to this question of for the gp for the doctors standing uh with the drop in takings the drop in billings and the raise in costs, apparently there's also been a, a, a really strong increase in costs of just your administrative staff in a lot of practices, managing triage and all the rest of it. The way some of these stories, and this has been in the trade press, as I said, an Australian doctor that, that has been um, reported that if you take it at, at face value, it sounds like, well, there's going to be a whole bunch of GPs going out of, out of business. Is that the situation or is it, or was that a bit of panic? Look, I think we do need to put in perspective with other industries. I think um, the medical industry, uh, particularly frontline general practitioners, and I've got to say the ones who were probably hurt the most were the, the surgeons and the, some of the specialists um, in terms of the secondary sort of referrals. But in terms of general practice, we probably had a great deal of support compared to a lot of industries. Um, we would have always loved more. but. Um, you know, those those worries about the fact that initially, uh, you know, we, we did need to sort of revert to technology, the fact that the administrative costs really went up at that point because people needed to be, things needed to be dealt with and triaged at the front desk. And so, the you know, the, the reception staff were just taking enormous number of phone calls and they were just uh, the front line, really. Um, yeah, all these things were real things. And the, and the number of people we could see dropped off 
and the um, the complexity of things like the, the administrative side of things, paperwork, faxing, you know, having to email things um, was significantly greater. But having said that, I, I think I, I do need to be extremely thankful for the, you know, it can be critical, but we the AMA worked very hard with the government in this area and and I've never seen a department that department work so quickly uh, in terms of really understanding the need to try and shift things uh, you know things that would normally have taken frankly years or decades well telehealth it was a decade thing <laughs> hasn't even moved um, and things like e-prescribing have moved far more quickly than than would otherwise be the case so I think on the one hand, it has been, uh, you know, really problematic for a lot of practices. And, and, you know, there have been a lot of practices here. And the nurse issue is absolutely for real. But the overall, there has been a significant amount of movement and uh, hopefully the sort of beginning of a far more proactive sort of uh, way of dealing with government, which actually stops just worrying about absolutely everything that can go wrong and actually starts thinking about what, you need to do to get things right, which I think to some degree there has been. So I'll be a little bit more positive, although understanding the hurt that's been out there, even in my sector. Just just to cut through that, I mean, the, 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 what I'm trying to ask you is that, you know, GB billings were down. There was this talk that maybe practices would fold, but that doesn't seem to be the case now. Is that is that the short version? Um, I think that things are getting back to normal now. You can see that. Um, to some degree, like a lot of things, this was always a patch-up job. I mean, a lot of stuff that went on was a bit of a patch-up job, a very quick patch-up job. At least the patch was able to be applied to try and keep it on life support. But more importantly, I, I think we can focus on the, you know, that. It was really main, being able to maintain the health system. This was about maintaining the health system, which you couldn't have that collapse because everything else was going to go on. There were a lot of important things that were happening medically and I was dealing with, and I have been, throughout that whole thing. It wasn't just about about the, the, the survival of practices. It was about maintaining the health of our patients and we can't forget that. Well, no, but I mean, that's, that's, the, that's been something that's been sort of a drum that's been beaten for a while. So I guess we sort of had to get to the point of saying, well, has it happened or is it going to happen? Things seem to be levelling out. Look, the other thing is, though, because there were all those disruptions, because, you know, you turn up at your doctor, you'd be met by someone who was in a mask, they'd want to take your temperature. It seemed to me to pose an interesting question about the possible changing relationship between doctors and their patients. Because suddenly doctors, in effect, became a, a, a pretty protected, and, and importantly, a protected species. We, you know, we didn't want people just going into practices with a runny nose or whatever, uh, of course, giving other people there, but especially the doctors, getting them sick. And so you had this sort of very, um, I think for some people, challenging notion that 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 they were feeling well, they needed to see their doctor, but they couldn't just get in there to do it. And then, of course, as you say, many many practices went strictly to to telehealth. Do you think that's going to have a, a kind of permanent stamp on the relationship between doctors and, and patients? No, not really, I don't think. I think it's been relatively minor. I mean, to some degree, doctors were still taking a risk. Um, you know, there was always a chance that people could get through with minor symptoms. This whole thing was, for us, not necessarily about absolutely stopping us being at uh, no risk at all. It was about probability reduction. And, and that's the whole process. It's not, it's not a zero-sum game with COVID. I don't think it ever can be right throughout the whole process. I guess, I guess the question I'm actually asking you, though, is about, is about patient perception. Mm. And, and c- coupled with that, you've also had these 
awful reports of health workers attracting abuse. I, I didn't, it looks to be honest, I didn't even understand that. It just seemed insane to me. But, but I guess the question I am asking about is, is patient perception, that there did seem to be a, a real upending of the order for them. You know what it's like. People go to the doctor, they feel anxious anyway. So you turn yeah. up and suddenly there's this idea that maybe you can't even see your doctor. It, it would have seemed to me to be a, a significant, a reasonably significant event for a lot of a, a lot of people, especially maybe a lot of older patients. And I guess I'm just um, curious to see what kind of feedback you actually got from your patients, not necessarily from your fellow doctors. On a personal level and w- within my practice, I, I, we have really not had any of that really. I think generally people have been incredibly good about it. Uh, there's been a real positive sense of people working together generally, I think, and I just credit to the, the, the patient population that comes and sees us. Um, I, I certainly have heard sort of spasmodic things are carrying on, prob- probably more from, you know, worries that the doctor could be the cause of spreading early on, actually, if anything. Um, and, um, and certainly I've heard some terrible stories in pharmacies, interestingly, about uh, the behaviour in pharmacies when when people couldn't get certain medications, for example, and and I gather the pharmacists all have had to put up with a fair bit as well. So there has been the edge of that, but I think it's probably in the realms of an incredible, a huge amount of anxiety in the, the entire community, particularly earlier on. And hopefully that will start to normalise. Yeah, I guess the anxiety would then go back to my other question about people not deciding not to go to the doctor for their for other needs and being having some anxiety about that. But I guess the the big question is, are those numbers starting to write themselves? Are people starting to go back to their doctors for for, for whatever? Um, I think um, certainly we're seeing, and I mean, I, even at our practice at the moment, there seems to be a normalisation of that. People are starting to get back. I mean, my, my biggest issue would be complacency. Um, yeah. But also I have had a few people come through to me, and that's why I said my initial point, that they've come through despite warnings on our phone line on our front desk oh, right. and with receptions, they've come in and they said, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I've actually got a scratchy throat, which I didn't think was very important. And that's actually the, the level we're at at the moment. So there has been a, I think there's been a relaxation. And I think if anything, we're starting to hit a little bit that way. So what do you do in that instance? Someone sort of basically breaches the barrier and comes in and says, oh, by the way, what, what do you, you throw them out or what, what's, how do you deal with that? Well, First up, we do have contingencies already. So we've already set up practical things. So in the waiting room, everybody's 1.5 metre apart. We don't have a lot of chairs in the waiting room. We have a large waiting room. Uh, we have a you know, gap between us and the reception, that's, uh, the patients and receptionists. And then even in my room, for example, um, there's one and a half metres between me and the patient and certainly easy access to masks and there's masks for patients and ourselves. Uh, but, yeah, it has been a little bit frustrating on a number of cases where uh, individuals have... Just, I think it's being polite, and I think we just got to get out of this politeness about this. And you can't, if you've got a scratchy throat, running nose fever. In the past, the, the world before was you'd go to work and you, you wouldn't complain. And this this mindset is a really big thing that has to change. And it's been really interesting in the last two weeks that that has started to happen. And that's something that from a, from AMA we have to. We have to push this. When when you say politeness, what what do you what do you mean by politeness? It's a politeness. Like I don't want to complain about a, a scratchy throat that's not worth worrying about, oh, or I a runny nose, or that sort of thing, because that's how the next you know that's how we're going to um, get uh, 
lack of control of cases. You know, one of these individuals is going to be a spot fire, is going to turn under a bushfire, is going to have a second wave. But that's, you know, how things like the, the Melbourne, you know, McDonald's situation happens. Those sort of things are the sort of things that will happen because people don't want to complain um, and they don't uh, want to sound pathetic about having a, a bit of a scratchy throat. That's, that's our reality. The studies show that you have about 10% of the population at any one time having any of those symptoms. And that 10% really have to think differently now. And then they have to think differently. That is, they isolate, they get a test in some way, call the GP or go to a respiratory clinic. But GPs at that point have to make sure that when they're coming into the clinics, we maximise the risk. We hope if they don't come in, they ring first. And then if they do, if they, if we do pick them up, either by phone or by the telehealth consult or in the consultation room, we get them tested and the GPs have to do their part because we, we, you know, we've been talking about all this app and everything else, but the front line is actually the general practice to pick these cases up. Do you, do you see that vigilance going on for years? I mean, it's a, it's, it sounds like a very fundamental shift in a way that... Well, that until we, we find a, a solution to this, which is a treatment or a, or a, uh, a vaccine, and until that happens, we really need to do that. But, if, if you look at the, if we go back to the original modelling, I mean, you know, which was all that scary modelling about, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Really, the, the issue, I was looking initially at how does the model get us out of this, you know? Um, and really, we've kind of got three three options. One is eradication, which I think at this stage is looking pretty unrealistic. I don't think it's possible. Eradication means no cases and get it out because even if we did, we'd have to close our borders until you know it completely settled down the rest of the world. Then the next one is we we don't control it. We don't do those four pillars, which I said before, those four lines of defence. And what happens is it'll just build up again and then we have to lock yeah. down again. So it'll be honeymoon lockdown, honeymoon lockdown, and that's just a horrendous option for us. So really the, the, the option we've got at this moment is compress it as far as possible so you can control your destiny as far as the number of cases way under the curve, which I think basically is the same in all the rest of Australia, and then have those four pillars, hospitals ready, high contact tracing, social distancing, social distancing rules, and then high vigilance on both the, the responsibility of patients and the, the doctors to do the testing. Uh, to get tested or do the testing. I think when you mention complacency, that's where the risk is. It's the, the risk is there mm. with social distancing, and as you and if people aren't being particularly mindful and vigilant with their own symptoms. Look, moving on, the AMA is very keen to see um, uh, MBS funded telehealth embedded in the system, and uh, your, uh, your your national president um, actually recently wrote a piece for Oz Doctor on that. But of course, there are some challenges. There are some challenges there. There's also anxiety about the medical legal risks of telehealth, uh, fears over misdiagnoses and patients' complaints. There are a couple of examples. One which borders on comedy with um, Mr. Shane Solomon, chair of the Independent Hospital Pricing Authority. He actually went to uh, he, he took to social media about his experience with the GP telehealth having booked a consult, I think, via Medinet. And um, anyway, he said it was no different to using a vending machine. He said, the, he said the consultation was basically conducted entirely via instant messages. It was a, like, a, he felt like it was a chatbot culminating in a script being sent to him electronically. It took four minutes, 48 seconds from start to finish and was charged $73.95. I think that billing has then since been reversed do you think he had much to complain about, or do, or do, or do consults like that? Uh, I mean, that, it doesn't sound optimum to me, but on occasion, do consults like that actually work? 
No, I mean, look, that that's not going to be really very possible because you can't, you're not really having real-time communication. Each bit helps a little bit more. So obviously, um, you know, uh, direct communication, which you can actually at least re-listen to voices and, and actually react immediately is going to be one thing. Visual is better. That's why video conferencing is preferred so that you can actually see things and actually see both body language and also maybe things that are visible. Ultimately, face-to-face, it has to complement face-to-face. And I think that's the point I would say to you. There was, though, a, a survey that found that uh, phone calls were actually accounting for 95% of all telehealth consultations and that doctors weren't that keen on video calls. That's the technology. It's the technology. Because we got caught with our pants down, because there's been such a um, – it, it's chicken and the egg. So, look, we, we, telehealth was actually available – for rural areas since around about 2011-12. I was involved right. in one of the groups developing that. Bit. But it hasn't been progressed for other areas. And because of that, it's chicken and the egg. There hasn't been a sort of a, a funding reason to drive innovation so that we can get the, the video conferencing done properly. And because, as like I said, you, you get to the point where you need both people using it. It has to be the doctor using the same technology as, as we are on here as, as the patient. And for some patients, that, that, that half of the equation is just as difficult. So we haven't really had that market develop over time. But I think if, if it's there, it'll, it'll happen. Now, look, the other side of it is, is that um, of the telehealth is that uh, there have been a couple of instances of it sort of going fairly badly. One was someone who had been on pain medication and uh, she ended up getting a via a telephone call the advice to take more of the med- it was an opiate anyway she ended up dying and um, again that that seems to suggest a, a fairly serious vulnerability. I think it gets down to the fact that doctors do have responsibility to um, in all situations assess the risk of doing things by telehealth. Telehealth is not a viable option in certain situations. Sometimes you do yeah. need to bring people in. You do need to put your hands on people to feel or examine things, uh, which you cannot do over the phone or, or, or by video conference. And I think that's there's always going to be these um, issues, which is upsetting, obviously, and particularly in this situation. But I think um, over time, we've got to get better at it. We have actually been learning on, on the job in the last few weeks. And, and look, obviously, to be fair, that does seem to be a pretty extreme and, and, and obviously a rare case. But uh, I, I, do you feel that there is that um, enthusiasm from doctors generally to to have more of a, a, a telehealth presence? I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing they still want to see their patients. I, I think there is, but in the right place. I, I must say that since it started, there, there has been a little bit of lust to come off it because it is actually quite tedious. <laughs> I mean, having to do right. this from home and having done it, it's 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 not it's not maybe maybe not as easy as what people may have thought. There's a lot more um, indirect communication, particularly because things are a little bit clunky. You know, you still have to get the script out, the rules about the script. We still have to get you prescribing going. Those are lots of bits of paperwork flying everywhere. My my lounge room at the moment is covered in them. Um, right. But the but. But I think overall, this is such an important thing for the future of health. Um, understand the future. I, I think the AMA has a has a uh, long term vision about this, where um, uh, telehealth put in its place is absolutely complementary to everything else. So that particularly for those 
you know, if I've got an individual who's disabled, paralysed at home um, or has comes in a wheelchair and has to come in uh, just for certain things which may not need them to come in for, um, it could be done remotely. Those things can still be done then, but then we only have to bring them in and put them through the convenience of access cabs and those sort of things, you know, when it's absolutely required. And I think that sort of holistic view about it, and that's probably where we need to link it with really high quality general practice, not just allow it to become fast food like the way you've kind of maybe described it, you know, where these pop-ups which have just appeared out of nowhere, being a bit optimistic, just go for it and think that, you know, everything can be done by telehealth. It's just not possible. It needs to be complementary and as part of a, a wider suite of options. So as, a, as an option, I think it should be there, but it needs to be linked to high-quality practice. I can see that it, it can be a very great thing for, for many patients, especially those who need regular, uh, you know, some kind of regular consult. But also, um, one thing that was interesting, Medibank's reported like a 78% lift, I think, in people accessing home-based services, especially um, chemotherapy. There's a bit of a line that um, oncologists were resistant of that, and certainly hospitals were because they don't get to clip the ticket. But now they've had quite a significant lift in people accessing those those services, which are obviously very convenient, especially people with cancer going having chemo at home, not having to drive in, wait around, feel feel like hell, and then feel like hell on the trip home. It, it does seem to me that COVID, in in some ways, has actually provided a bit of a, a bit of a positive opportunity there. Yeah, you know, I think there's been a silver lining to COVID. If there has been one, it's that. Um, we've been forced to think smart. Look, when I go to a lot of meetings, we have a lot of people who are either understandably sceptical, you know, it's a negative naysayers. A lot of people, it's a lot easier to say no, but we sometimes don't actually look at the fact that sometimes not moving forward is actually a problem and actually causes risk as well. And the first thing to say out of that, hospitals are dangerous places. I mean, and COVID has emphasised that. We want to keep people out of hospital as much as possible, really. And that's not just because you want to save money. The criticism is that it's about saving money. It isn't. We want to actually not – we don't want to build buildings for the sake of building a building anymore. We want to be smart like other other countries, which have actually understood that it's not the building which counts, it's the care which counts. So I think there has the opportunity now – in the current COVID environment to actually think outside the square and actually look at what we can do, not what we can't do. And I've been actually quite proud of the fact that, you know, and impressed by the fact that the government have understood this. And what we need to do now is embed some of the good stuff and obviously clear up all the the, the, the bad edges of it. There's rough edges of this that need clearing up. So we need to sort out things I can see as telehealth when it's appropriate, like good, good care with a multidisciplinary team and only use when appropriate, but uh, so the patients only have to come in if required. Get the e-prescribing right. Get our secure messaging so we never have to send faxes anymore. For God's sakes, we're still doing faxes in general practice. It's pretty crazy. And I think one of the other things that as I, I come from a digital health background, one of the things we don't have in Australia, we need digital signatures, um, which is becoming quite a problem. In Denmark, they have a digital signature. Everybody in the for everything, you know, you sign anything. You don't have to sign by giving a, uh, a handwritten signature for everything. Um, digital signatures have got to be really important, not just in health, but in other areas, like signing things like um, um, advanced care directives and those sort of things uh, are the sort of things. You mean from a point of view of, of, you mean from a point of view of security? Yeah. So I think we're in a, we need to start thinking that way, not just um, go backwards on this. Countries that do well, any team that does well, um, pedals harder as it hits towards 
the top of a hill, as I've been told. Uh, winners yeah. do that, and that's where we should be going for as a country, not sort of relaxing because we feel as though we're doing better at the moment, feeling complacent about COVID, because that's when we'll fail. We, we have a great chance to actually prove things despite all the a lot of hurt that's occurred because of COVID in our community. Yes, look, and look, ultimately, we got off light. We didn't have the big rush on the on the on the system, and therefore, in a way, the system wasn't actually tested. Much really to our relief, surely. Look, there is one group of GPs that aren't particularly thrilled about telehealth, and that's the um, the after hours GP services. Uh, the president of the GP Deputising Association reckons that those after-hour GP services are facing annihilation as patients turn to telehealth. Is that just a, is that just another piece of panic? There do seem to be these sort of spots of panic that have that have flared up. Is that, or is it more than that? Are, is there a genuine complaint there? I think um, it does change the balance of um, normal practices being able to provide the care that's so a patient's normal practice being able to be able to provide the care for a patient um, in an yeah. after-hours situation. So, and, and certainly I have in fact heard that it has really impacted upon the after-hour services. Again, there are certain situations where it's not possible to um, provide care that's not face-to-face. Um, and so I think, you know, in this huge recalibration of the health system, which has occurred in every area, um, I think we'll have to see uh, how that comes out, because there will need to be that support for after-hours face-to-face services. Um, you know, in the end, it is going to be a matter of how it looks and what's best for the community and patients, really. And that's, I'll, I'll get back to that. That's what this is all about. Um, ultimately, um, you know, I think we have had the biggest change imposed upon us that I've ever seen, and I think there will be a requirement for that but how it's funded to make it viable is going to be the question if that's what we need at the end of it. And I think we do need it to complement telehealth in the future. All right, look, one final question. GPs are still frustrated by the availability of the flu vaccine. That's according to the Immunisation Coalition, says the delivery system has buckled under the weight of COVID. We wrote a piece a little while ago about this. Uh, there were some in the people we spoke to quite rumblings that pharmacists had cornered the supply publicly. They didn't, uh, people didn't necessarily want to go that far. Um, is it just the delivery system? Is this a presage perhaps of how it's going to be when we're, we're going to be trying to roll off, roll out, um, massive vaccinations once a, a COVID vaccination arrives? Is it much of an issue or is it, is it just, or is it again, is it? Just a bit of a complaint. Yeah, th- this year was a bit unprecedented, I think, um, and there were a few issues. I-, I think GPs were frustrated about the lack of access to private flu shop supplies, and it was yeah. very difficult for general practice to get that. We were incredibly frustrated um, in our group to be able to not be able to do that, and, and and being able to see that you know pharmacy groups were able to accept that. So th- there was a concern from that side of things. So what happened how there? Did, how did it end up that pharmacy groups were able to do that and, and GPs were left you know, without access to that supply? How, how did that happen? Well, we were concerned that it was just their supply mechanisms and, and their access was easier than ours and it was, it was not, did not seem to be equitable. Um, and for whatever reason, we weren't able to do that. And so a lot of GPs felt like, you know, we had patients coming in before the government funded vaccine came in. We wanted to get some of the 
the, the other community vaccinated first. We were just unable to get our hands on that at all for, for, for many, in many situations or getting very minor supplies. Um, and so, look, I think in the future we're going to have to look at why that happens. Most vaccinations are private, right? I mean, you've got your, your, um, you got your kids, you've got young, young people, and you've got old people and people with chronic conditions. Um, yeah, so the government ones came later. They came later. Uh, there were issues with that as well, can I just say, but I think we went yeah. from one problem to the other. Last year, there was a feeling like it was just a little bit too slow because uh, last year we were coming off a really mild season the year before and they they came out a bit slow and, and there were some frustrations at that stage. But this year, I think we almost went too fast and my understanding was was they got distributed so much. The entire amount for all the over 65s, for example, were were sent out, but they were because of the fact that practices were really gearing up the huge numbers. They some practices sort of overordered based on the predictions on their computer systems trying to predict it. Um, whereas those people might have had it from another practice. And so there was actually this variable amount of supply. And uh, there was yeah. so it was actually recalibrating and equalizing that out and redistributing it became a problem later. Um, so they, they, yeah, we, we did run into this a few weeks ago, but I, I think that thing, that's settling down. Because when we're getting it, we're, we're nearly at the end of May, I guess it's, you know, heading into June, you'd, you'd, you'd want most people vaccinated by now, wouldn't you? Yeah, my, my understanding is we're doing pretty well at the moment, so we do need more, but we're doing very well. Oh, good, fair enough. Um, look, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us today. Allow me to prescribe you a regular dose of conversation with the New Daily, because I do hope we'll get you back. Great. Good to speak with you always, John. Thanks, Chris. Look, great. Next week, you'll be hearing about Generation COVID the wave of Australians born into the pandemic. But hang on, what about the fascinating millennials? What happened to them? Well, apparently they're old news. In fact, the oldest are heading toward middle age. <laughs> I love that. We'll be talking about the generational hiccups with Mr. With Dr. Sorry, Dan Woodman, Associate Professor of Sociology with the University of Melbourne. Until then, just we desolate, keep away from one another when walking the street or buying those sausages. Talk to you then.